Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, your weekly discussion of motoring news. This is episode 470 on Tuesday, the 3rd of May, 2020. Hello, I'm Aaron. Hello, I'm Andrew. And this week, we'll be getting acquainted with an old friend of the show. We note the government has realised that the e-scooter genie is out of the bottle. And we find out just how many cars Alan can drive in a day. (laughs) Too many. Straight off into new news. And it is Defeat Devices. Hooray! Germany, Italy, and Hungary prosecutors have raided Suzuki, Stellantis, and also one of Stellantis and Suzuki's suppliers who gives them engine stuff. Now, why are they doing Suzuki and Stellantis? They are investigating Suzuki's diesel cars. Stellantis provide the engines, and then there is the supplier that helps give some parts for the diesel engine. Who would have thought that the Suzuki S-Cross could have caused quite so much amusement? Yes. <laughs> I think this is very much a low-hanging fruit one, I think. Yeah, interesting that Stellantis are once again pulled into. Yes, well, this time it's Fiat Stellantis. So they must have found a connection. They must have found a connection because Stellantis via Fiat hmm. have been investigated before. So it must be a similar engine that has been used by Suzuki. Well, it would be, because it's the the S-Cross. Because remember, it was badged as the something. The Fiat something, yeah. Yeah, the Fiat something. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I can't remember what what it was called. It's that, 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 um, it just stands out that much in in my mind. I can picture it. That helps. (laughs) It's of no use whatsoever on a podcast, is it? Yeah, that one. You all know the one. <laughs> right. Before before we just circle ourselves around in ever-decreasing circles, do you want to take us to... this week than last week. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to take us to where the RAC fear people being wrongly prosecuted or fined? Well, this is quite an interesting one, actually, because a few weeks ago, we talked about how local authorities across the UK, outside of London, would be able to enforce a number of of different things. Uh, Key amongst them were yellow box junction offences. So people pulling into yellow box junctions when they shouldn't have, and the traffic lights changing, and then you take a photo and, and then get sent a fine. And that's great until you realize that the official guidance on the design, maintenance, and enforcement of yellow box junctions are just guidelines rather than actual rules. Mm. Yellow box junctions are not consistently defined, and they're not necessarily defined within any set of rules. As I say, it is a set of guidelines about where you really kind of should have them. RAC now is crying for greater clarity to stop motorists being wrongly fined uh, because the box junctions are poorly defined and it's impossible to use them in the way that they're intended to be used. Darius is saying that whilst 57% of drivers are in favor of the box junctions being enforced, they've also discovered that there are large design flaws. Things like the box junctions being painted in completely the wrong place, being much larger than necessary, and also them being obscured by buildings or street furniture, so you can't necessarily see them before you're in them. Mm. Chapter 5 of the Traffic Signs Manual, if you want to go off and read what they, where they should be. Uh, but it's been found to be generally unsatisfactory, quote, unquote. Well, I think the, uh, was it Mr. Loophole, mm. will do very well, or similar, I think. will do very well from this, because as it is only guidelines, you're sort of going, well, 
you know, if it, it, it seems like there is far too much gray area. Well, there's a really good line here in this uh, motoring research article by John Redford, and it says, in particular, the traffic signs manual does not actually state the purpose of a box junction. And information on how to design and maintain them or enforce their use is also notable by its absence. And really, the main principle for them is to be no bigger than is necessary to prevent vehicles obstructing through movements. In this kind of case, it might be possible if you're on a box junction, you get caught and you're not obstructing any through movements, then that's the kind of loophole which you can see being not exploited, but being quite rightly uh, raised to show that a box junction is not fit for purpose. Mm. Right. I'm going to take us on to MOTs and the news that came out last week when the government was having a blue sky thinking moment. They were trying to cover something up, Andrew. Well, we are told that the purpose for the meeting was to come up with possible solutions, and this is key though, possible, possible solutions and help for the cost of living crisis that the UK, not just the UK, but the UK is particularly feeling at the moment. One of the ideas that came out from this that people thought was worthy enough to share with the public was that they will move MOTs or that they could move MOTs to be every other year once a car reaches the point that it needs an MOT. Pretty much everyone who heard that thought it was a ridiculously crazy idea. Yes. Pretty much. Pretty much. Most people whose opinions that you would probably take on board anyway thought that that was the case, yes. There are two aspects to this. There is obviously the aspect of one as the owner of the vehicle Mm -hmm. and how there has been consistently i i can't i don't have the the graph to hand so please don't ask me for my reference but there was a graph that came out that showed that year on year around 30 percent catastrophically fail their MOTs every year. Yeah, yeah. there is a, basically there is a, it, it, it's the, not, not just catastrophically, but but 25, 20 to 28, if I remember rightly, percent of all vehicles fail their MOT. As it is at one year between them and the standard level of, of enforcement that there is here. Now, other European countries do have two year gaps between their MOTs or their equivalent, but it's worth mentioning that they have a completely different structure to how those are then enforced. France is the example that I'm most aware of, but they then have pretty much dedicated testing centers with a lot of kit in them, Okay, which is not necessary. They are more rigorous than the British MOT, right? but they're every two years. Mm-hmm. And that's where the balance is. They're also more expensive. Because, of course, the places have to have all this kit, they have to maintain it and stuff. And that's one of the things about this. It's all very well making these kind of saying these kind of things. But sure, you could move to a two year MOT, but the MOTs themselves would have to be significantly more rigorous, need more staff. Uh, that means that garages would then have to somehow find the money to stump up for all of that up front to be running it, to then have fewer vehicles coming through, to then, you know, it's a knock on effect. Will it actually save £54.85 a year? Well, that's it. Will it blooming heck? Come on. 
that's a pound something a week. That that's the thing because the extra cost will hit the pocket. It will just be instead of being spread out over two years, it's going to be in mm. one hit. So it, you know, half for the sake of argument, halving it each year in a simplistic place. Yes, it will be one hit of a much higher proportion. You know, percentage wise, yeah. it'll be a much bigger and harder hit, particularly for those on lower income. Mm-hmm. Now, the other side of this is the garages themselves. The garages themselves are already still trying to recover from the pandemic. Which industry isn't? Who knows? But from the pandemic, apart from politicians. (laughs) So they don't need to be told, we will now cut off one of your income streams. Yeah. So because for so many people, the MOT is their only service of the year. Mm Mm-hmm. And just, you see, even relatively new cars, just for cars having reached MOT age with bald front tires and all sorts of stuff. And you just, you know. Mm. It, it, it is a false economy that does not stand up to any scrutiny, more, or, more but bearing minutes. in mind the, you know, just taking into account the real world. Hopefully this does not become a thing but we've seen previously in order to get around problems the government has decided to reduce the safety that has been carefully built up over years to get to a point where we are able to go around our lives generally and not get hurt thinking about the lorry drivers test mm-hmm. and the, what they were required to learn is a prime mm-hmm. example of that mm-hmm. i hope they are not going to go down they are not going to use that as precedent well it doesn't matter we're, we're reducing red tape or whatever it is they want to well, call about we, it and the, and, the, and the real problem with cars. all <laughs> and the real problem with all this is unfortunately and this makes me very cross is we're now having to talk about politics when it shouldn't be about politics it should be a government policy that isn't necessarily political poli- yes it isn't political it is for something else and that's quite frustrating for us on the podcast let alone uh, you poor uh, listeners <laughs> i heard a muttering that this was that that some of this was possibly down to to plans and i hope to privatize the dvla that was a something I heard off the back of this. Wonderful. To be honest, to be honest, let's face it, it couldn't be any worse, could it? Yes, it could. DVLA and Vosa could be much worse. Uh, Vosa's yes, DVLA and it, it it could be. Let's but it let's not be. go down it that could route. Be. I'm being silly, but yes, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Anyway, should we move on? Do you want to take us to where the trains no longer go? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Mazda a couple of weeks ago, and Mazda mm-hmm. are now uh, shipping, quite literally, cars straight to the UK from Japan. A couple of reasons for that. One of which is it means they don't have to pass through the EU because, you know, we've got this awesome agreement. And, oh no, I've gone politics again. I'm so sorry. It's just so hard to avoid it at the minute. And now BMW and Volkswagen, p- pardon me, BMW and Audi, it says Volkswagen's premium brand, which threw me off have suspended shipments of cars by rail from Germany to China following, obviously, the war in the Ukraine. Last year, BMW shipped almost a million vehicles, 846,237 BMW Mini vehicles to China, and over just over 700,000 Audis were shipped that way, which is a lot. Mm. It's an awful lot. But obviously, uh, Trans-Siberian Railway isn't really accessible to anyone these days the moment yeah. uh, so it's not possible so everything's going to have to go back by ship moving everything moving vehicles by train was more expensive i think than moving them by 
moving them by ship, but it took about half the length of time. It yep. was far less affected by weather and canals getting blocked and all sorts or of sinking. things. But what, what's happened now is that they'll be hit because of the lockdown in China. Mm-hmm. There's all those ships that are waiting to dock at Shanghai, etc., that can't because no one's allowed out to then go and unload these things or or, or a very small number of people are, mm-hmm. which is causing a massive backlog and is actually affecting global supply chains back the other way and all sorts of stuff because we... Yeah, it's all sorts the, of stuff. The, the, it's containers the, end up in the wrong places at the wrong times and you end up with a build-up and all sorts of silly things like that. And the global supply chain is very much built on just-in-time, which includes the containers to shift stuff around. And that is all being thrown... I mean, it was already bad because of the pandemic and they were trying to catch up from that. And they're never given. It is now being made massively worse than it was before. So, good luck, everyone. It's awesome! It's a ray of sunshine today. I'm sorry, we we do not dictate the news, I'm afraid. <laughs> Anyway, if you want to know a little bit more about that, then there's a really good article by Daniel Puddicombe on Real Magazine website. Linky will be in the show notes. Yeah, it is very interesting. It's only a few words, but yes, it's excellent. Yep. Only a few words on the website. Pardon me. Uh, Andrew, we, we talked about Volta before. Do you want to talk about them again? Yes, I will. Um, they have now revealed two smaller versions of their 16-ton last-mile electric-only lorry which will be coming out in 2025. This is a seven and a half ton and a 12 ton uh, versions. These will complement and basically look exactly the same as the 16 ton, but be able to go into smaller areas and therefore they will meet the needs and the cost will be down, will meet the needs of far more businesses that will want to use this sort of vehicle. I'd still like to really see the first one yes. come out properly. <laughs> Yes, well, me too. That was my thought as well. I think it's good to keep to keep that sort of, well, keep the same cab, essentially. I was going to say family resemblance. Keep the same cab, because that's where a lot of the development money is in that months. You've, you can change the chassis length, uh, length and obviously the GVW quite easily. Yeah. I think they look quite good. They, they look pretty decent. I'm always surprised. I though. wish they were real and not renders in all of these pictures, though. I want to see more of them for real, please. Well, they're in the last stages of development and about to go to customer trialing. They are almost with us as a, as an entity. But one thing I've I've always wondered, you know, the, 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 if people click through on the show notes, you'll see the the cab, and it very much. I am reminded of. And this, I don't mean this disparagingly, but just in the looks of a bin lorry type front where there's a large screen, large doors, easy to get in and out of yes. a lot of people quickly. Yes. Uh, stuff like the Mercedes Econ- Econic. Gosh, I will get corrected if I've got that wrong. Uh, which <laughs> is well known for you being used as a bin lorry and, and stuff like that. But also, this is becoming a more common cab style. And the reason is because the visibility is so much better. It puts drivers closer to the ground, essentially, and closer to the other vehicles and pedestrians and things. So visibility is much better. And also ergonomically, especially for delivery vehicles like this, it's perfect if you can just get straight in and out with one step rather than having to go, turn around, go two around, two steps, turn around again. There are many benefits to this. Now, one of the things Volta is saying is that, of course, they can do this really, really easily because they don't have an engine under the cab. 
Well, this is what I was going to ask, right? That's, because that's because what hangs everything for, forward on the other trucks. Mm. Why is the front windscreen so tall? Is it to help remind the driver, actually, don't forget, you've got a lorry and there is X amount above you and stuff? Because realistically, you don't need that much glass, do you? Really? It needs to be that tall because when you stand up, there needs to be space for you. No, you don't need that much glass, Mm -hmm. but if you raked it lower, if you made more of a slant on the top of the cab, then you wouldn't have the headroom to be able to get out the door without cracking your head off stuff. You could put a panel across the top. You could, but it might look weird. It would look like it's got an overly high forehead. Okay. Because I've noticed a few lorries on the road... Tr- the truck designers, come on, chime in with this one, please. And by the way, I, I am very interested why, okay, you've got the engine on a normal one, you an internal combustion engine or a hybrid one, you've got the engine underneath, and therefore you have to sit all the way up, and then you really do need as much glass as possible so you can see all around you. I know we've got cameras now and sensors and all this sort of stuff, so I can get that. But if you are low to the ground anyway... I don't have an answer to this. Okay. Come on, designers. Come on, commercial vehicle PR people. Answer a ruddy awkward question. Just curious. I, I don't know, but I think it'll look odd otherwise. I think there'll either be ergonomic issues or it'll look weird. Okay. That that's my that's what I reckon. All right. All right, enough of that. Take us to some charging points, please. Yes. Uh Volkswagen and BP are going to roll out for a new fast charging network. Now, this is quite interesting because Volkswagen, of course, is a major shareholder in Ionity, uh, which are fast chargers set around motorways and trunk roads. And they're incredibly quick, but they are quite expensive because they need quite a lot of their own infrastructure, amongst other things. Volkswagen BP are looking to roll out their FlexPole 150 kilowatt charging units. The idea of these, these poles is that they provide two charge points, Uh, And they have a built-in battery storage system. They don't need high-powered grid connections. They can run on a standard grid connection, store it up, use the batteries like a great big capacitor. And then when someone rocks up to charge, they can just discharge the batteries relatively quickly rather than anything else. That means they can provide speeds of up to 150 kilowatt. That will deliver or could deliver, if the car can take it, obviously, uh, 160 kilometers of driving in 10 minutes, depending, obviously, depending on the EV model. The idea is to roll roll out about 4,000 charge points at at BP's Aral retail sites in Germany and retail sites in the UK over the next two years. So this is this is quite a clever move, I think. Yeah, I, I think that sounds incredibly clever, and I like that a lot. I can see heavily subscribed charging points that's where it'll tail off because the battery has not had time to charge up again however the the concept i think is very clever and in the in the short term it'll Mm. get us more chargers quickly yeah more quick chargers quickly the other thing is it obviously if someone somewhere has a high enough throughput where that's becoming a problem you know the how quickly you can charge and, and recharge and whatever else is becoming a problem, then probably worth putting in the higher power, the the more expensive grid connection. Exactly. You'll work that out. You will get the data to understand where you need to do things. In the meantime, for most places, probably going to be loads. 
Mm. Certainly for for quieter for quieter areas. I mean, around here probably it's probably going to be fine for most. I think. Yeah, I, I think this sounds. It sounds like an interesting concept, and it's it good, and it's it's BP. So they've already got, you know, the, the, with Pulse, they've already got the start of that, and they've got lots of the back end infrastructure. This is new, shiny stuff at the front end. Yeah, like that one a lot. Mm, me too. Happy story, everyone. <laughs> uh, speaking of happy stories, Andrew, sure? <laughs> tell me about legalizing private e-scooters. <laughs> Yes, Grant Chaps was at the uh, Commons Transport Committee meeting to justify that he was actually been doing some work last week, and in it he made clear because they were in, they were interviewing him to find out what he'd been doing in the in the previous set amount of time, basically. And what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there was a there was a certain amount of that going on, uh, but one of the things he said that has actually been noted more than others is that in the Queen's speech, when Parliament goes back on the 10th of May, so next week, mm-hmm. they're going to announce that they're going to legalise private e-scooter use on public roads. It's not going to be that easy, though. There's got to be a catch here. Well... It's not going to be just any old e-scooter, is no, it? No, no. There's, there, there's lots of um, slightly woolly words where they haven't actually thrashed out the details of exactly how they're going to ensure thing is safe and all the rest of it. But he does mention we're going to legit properly. Uh, the quote is we will take powers to properly regulate and then be able to decide the usage of them. They don't know the details yet. And the way this was written initially, it looked it, or one, one version I read, it was like he was pushed and pushed and pushed. And he eventually said almost, <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, we're going to announce this in the 10th of May. <laughs> I announced it on May the 10th. Um, yeah. Do you know what the thing is? I don't have an issue with this as long as they're properly regulated. Yes, yeah, it's how they're regulated. Um, but the, I mean, the problem around our way is it's generally being used by scrotes mm-hmm. uh, illegally. Obviously, you see around here, not so much. It's being used by people who aren't scrotes as a way of getting to and from. But you've got an actual rental system. We don't have a rental. We have a rental trial. system, but still we don't have a trial the, here. We've got a rental system, and I think that some of it has meant the rental system has meant that people have gone off and bought their own. Because the rental system is quite expensive, actually. Well, it's not bad if you're a regular user. If it's worth you being a regular user, it becomes quite cheap. But if you're an occasional like me, then it becomes quite expensive. But there are quite a few people with their own e-scooters, but they seem to mostly fall in line with the rules around the rental ones, although they tend to be faster than a speeding bullet sometimes. Generally, they, they are actually quite a, they're becoming a bit more of a, an important part of the transport infrastructure here. Mm. Yeah, see, we don't have uh, much of an active travel network here. We do because of the types of factory that they are around me mm. and the type of work and demographic. Your town's layout also lends itself a little bit better than mine. It's kind of slightly fudged new town as mine, you see. So, so it kind of works. I just wish yeah. there were more. I wish there were more cycle routes. Says the man who complained about the nine million pound very short cycle route being introduced from the town centre to the station. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But it's just acknowledging what we expected. As soon as you let them on the road, they were always going to be legalised at some point. It's just how they're going to be legalised uh, and how we can keep injuries down and misuse that's because these are this is all great and this is a problem that we're finding and we have said repeatedly and came up in conversations on twitter yesterday 
you can bring all these new laws and regulations and rules in, but if you don't have anybody there who's able to enforce it, it's pointless. Yes, exactly. Less active travel, but incredibly warming at the same time. Paris. (laughs) Not intentionally. No. RATP, the Paris Passenger Transport Authority, uh, has taken 149 electric buses off the out of service for the time being after two of the Bellore Blue Bus 5SE models caught fire. The number 71 bus in southeast Paris uh, on Friday morning made got a lot of pictures and a, a lot of fuss was made of that, uh, understandably, mm. uh, the other day. It did so, look rather spectacular. Well, it took about 30 firefighters to put it out, according to this France Van Catra story uh, that we've got. Uh, another one caught fire on the Boulevard Saint-Germain, so right in the heart of Paris, on the 4th of April. Destroyed the vehicle again, but it didn't cause uh, any industries. Uh, if you wonder where you've heard us talk about Bolloré before, then they also uh, supplied and ran the cars for the Autolib and owned the Autolib uh, oh, service yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in central Paris. That went so well. They were called Blue something. It went well for years until the tramps started taking over the cars, basically. That's what's happening. These buses had a what was described as a new generation of batteries with high energy density and optimal safety maybe two-thirds of that was true but yes we'll see what happens i'm sure that there'll be something they'll all go for safety checks and, and there might be a, a recall of of some type but let's just see how how quickly these come back into service and whether or not they're, they're tainted for the rest of their rest of their life mm. mm-hmm. yep tricky one that yeah, thankfully no one hurt there. That's the main thing. No, in in neither case was was anyone injured. So yep. this is good. Andrew, musical executives Mark One. Yes, one. <laughs> uh, McLaren has a new CEO. The former Ferrari uh, chief technical officer who also worked at Porsche, Michael uh, Leiters, uh, has joined the company there. He is also uh, being reunited with the ex-Porsche boss, Michael Macht. Um, who is already at McLaren. He's taken over from Mike Fluitt, who left uh, the autumn of last year, I think it was, because he sort of carried the can for the delays for the Artura that um, still not out, is it? I've lost track. We're at the 7876LTCGT3 who knows? The problem is there's that many monstrously mega hyper cars, super mega hyper whatevers from everybody that it's difficult to keep up. I'm sorry. I just can't keep on top of normal cars, to be honest, most of the time these days. It's a terrible admission. So Leiters has been responsible for bringing the KN to, uh, to development. And whilst he was at Ferrari, he was looking after the introduction of turbocharged mid-engine V8s, as well as their first hybrid production hyper and supercars, the SF90 and the 296. They're very nice looking. Mm. I haven't said that about a mid-engine Ferrari for a long time. I've not said that about a Ferrari for a long time. No, front-engine ones generally look okay, apart from the ones that look like Kias. Uh, fingers crossed they can bring some stability and some uh, reliability to McLaren's well here's hoping 
here's hoping. And, and that, the, obviously, reliability, by the way, being a, a byproduct of stability and, uh, uh, yeah, stability and, and repeatability and all the sorts of good things that come from the product development process. Yeah, they've got cash now. I think they've fixed most of their financial problems. Mm-hmm. They're not having to sort of worry about that whilst getting on with things. So hopefully that means that they can focus on making the cars as good as they can be and the components and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Do you want to take us to part two of motoring executives, <laughs> musical chairs? <laughs> well, here's one that I would never have guessed. No. And that is that uh, Massimo Fumarola is now the Morgan CEO, and he is formerly from Lamborghini. Mm-hmm. Good luck fitting gullwing doors to those. So supposedly, according to Piston Heads, this story from Piston Heads, they need a little bit of future-proofing, and that the further development of timeless coach-built sports cars needed, uh, it says turbocharging here, a little bit worried about that one. Uh, he was a former chief project management officer at Lamborghini, and he's going to be an taking over operational control. Current CEO Steve Morris, who's been at Morgan for 40 years, will become the executive chairman, so he's not getting completely free hand. Strategic growth, new product development, global promotion are the main the main buzzwords uh, on the, the strategic direction just there. So uh, that, should be, that should be good. I think that's really cool. I think he's going to also bring in uh, a knowledge and understanding of the technology that is now being required in cars, um, particularly with the partnership with BMW and the way that they're getting closer with them on their tech and stuff. That I, it, you know, it all helps add to the knowledge base and the understanding that, that company has. And we talked about their parent company last week, and mm-hmm. we got quite a few replies on the Twitters about people saying, yeah, we know about them, yeah. uh, and they're quite impressive. Mm. Uh, so it, that was that was quite nice feedback as well and interesting. So that the people generally seem to have a, a certain level of trust in Morgan and the ownership uh, that's in place. So Invest industrial. Invest industrial, thank you. I, I was halfway there in my mind. No, good news. Mm. I think that's the end of the first part there that we've rattled through fairly quickly. It does. Well, yes, given the number of stories we've done, all right. Yes. Uh, well, well, that brings us obviously to Guilt Minute, a quick break in the show where we ask for a tan of financial support to keep the lights on and the hosting running. If you feel the motoring podcast worth a small consideration every month, you can become a patron. Different levels of patron include different levels of commitment from us to you, including being able to watch the show recorded live. We also have a small range of merchandise available from our website and spring store from stickers to mugs and T-shirts. If you don't have any spare cash, we completely understand, then you can help us by following for free from a podcast player to receive every show as they're released and by liking and rating the show in whatever way your podcast supplier lets you. If you've done all that, and some of you do, so thank you very much, as always, then the last thing you can do is recommend us to your friends or colleagues. Thank you, everyone that does. And as Alan said, thanks, everybody, for uh, lots of feedback recently. Yes, there has been. been very enjoyable. Yes, it's been it's been nice, helpful feedback. So thank you. Mm. Okay, there's a slightly different take to part two this week, isn't there, Alan? Yes. Why is that, Alan? Many, many car news. Uh, it's because the reason we recorded on Monday last week is because Tuesday last week was the SMMT drive day at Melbrook, and it was felt that I would be too tired 
to record on the Tuesday evening. As it was, that was pretty dashed accurate. <laughs> <laughs> that was knackered. <laughs> I don't know if that's because I was knackered by the end of Monday night, by the time I'd recorded this. Uh, usual day out, courtesy of the SMMT at Millbrook. Explain to people who perhaps have not listened to us for years and years, what what is the SMMT test day? So the SMMT test or drive day is uh, an opportunity for many manufacturers to gather at Millbrook Proving Ground. That's not its correct name anymore. It's got a new name because it's been bought by people. But Millbrook Proving Ground in Bedfordshire, they bring along a bunch of cars and the SMMT invites along a bunch of journalists and people get to drive the cars. And also talk to people to actual real people it's great actually really in front of each other yeah so as uh, tim oldland was saying you know we're chatting we were we were just saying how important days like this were for part-timers like us uh people who who have uh, other jobs which maybe pay our mortgages and uh, don't necessarily have the time to attend launches and basically have to turn down more than we can go to it's, mm. it's actually the way the way it goes, and, and this actually gives us a chance to get some FaceTime with people, both uh, other other people who create content, write articles, do that kind of stuff, and also people who work for the various manufacturers uh, in the PR teams, and just just say hello. Yes, because we think that's sort of held us in the podcast particularly back recently. Uh, unfortunately, not being able to to see specific people we from don't pester industry people enough. that's what it is we don't pester people enough because we're mm. too busy to have time to do that yeah it's the way it's the way it goes it's the way so you, anyway. you said there that you get a chance to drive some vehicles what are we talking here time-wise are you you're talking oh, a couple uh, of hours yeah what? maybe 20 minutes 15 20 <laughs> minutes. well it depends you see there were quite a lot of people who took cars for quite a long time it caused some consternation. It's all very well trying a car and speaking to people, but don't turn it into a hedgehog of of uh, GoPros and take 40 minutes to prat around and do 37 pieces to camera with many takes. Well, really fits for as long as you want, but then, of course, how long you want or need or is reasonable, it depends on you and also how antisocial you are really what are you saying you saying you had about 20 minutes per car something like that <laughs> yes yes about 15 to 20 minutes generally generally I, I, my normal pattern is to take stuff out do the hill route take a picture do a second route the hill route, or just take pictures and then do the hill route it depends uh, really not very long basically mm-hmm. normally less time you get in a dealer test drive yeah so it's it really is a incredibly brief experience to just get the, the merest hint of a feel for the car yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so when uh, we're going to run through the cars alan uh, was uh, able to get into um, which are many just so you know that when you uh, when you do listen to him talking about them we're not talking full reviews here we're not talking he Thank would not goodness, write there's too many to go through 1500 words review here if he happened to be there that day uh, <laughs> on, on uh, a car. I, no, 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 I would not. There are others who would, and you yes. will see stuff, you will see videos that will make out like, well, we had this uh, yeah, half an hour tops, generally half an hour tops. Yeah, that's what you have to bear in mind when he goes in to explain these vehicles. 
there are ones that we will hopefully get on a longer test so we can do our more thorough review that you know and love. Yes. It's it's like tapas, really. It's tapas for cars. Okay. So so what did you nibble at first then, Alan? <laughs> well, my first munch of the day, Andrew, was uh, the Hyundai Kona N, a tasty little mouthful. Uh, I can't even make, I can't do this. Uh, so no, uh, Hyundai Kona N, uh, I was meant to have driven one for a week by now, but circumstances meant I didn't. So no, it was cool to go out and have a quick blat of that as my first car around the hill route. Uh, the hill route, but Milbrook, by the way, is the one that you've seen, you've seen it in so many films and us and road tests and all sorts of stuff. It is a sort of ever increasing severity set of hills and loops and like an alpine track which is what three miles four miles long something like that mm. if you've seen the recent series of fifth gear fully charged that's generally that's the route they took the volvo xc40 and those cars on mm. also if you've seen uh uh what was the first daniel craig bond film casino royale casino royale where he flips the aston martin that's on the hill route as well and you are legally obliged to say this is the point where it flipped over as you drive. Yeah, past. you are. And Johnny English as well. And there was something, some other film I watched recently, and it was the Hillbrook route at Millbrook. So yes, it looks like an Alpine road. Anyway, Kona N DCT, a mere um, uh, what does it put out? DCT. So, uh, so it's a dual clutch transmission as opposed to being okay. a manual. So it sounds like a Volkswagen. Uh, Two hundred eighty brake horsepower in a front-wheel drive compact SUV, 0-62, 5.5 seconds. I had forgotten just how quick these things are, uh, how quick the i30N is, because it's essentially that package, but a little bit taller. Uh, I really want to go with this, uh, a longer go with this. It was it was cracking. It was a good car to start the day, if a little bit powerful. Normally, my first car out is a low-powered one, so that I can remember where the corners go um so this was Let the this track was, dry yeah uh, well this was first thing in the morning straight out because i actually booked it before i'd gone and had my breakfast because the the pr likes that kind of thing and he'd been making fun of me okay so uh so we decided not to do not to let him do that any longer uh, and i went there first but really cool really like it would love a longer trial of course okay so what did you move on to next so next up was barely less powerful in fact, it was possibly more powerful, but I moved on to an EV for a change of tack. And I actually went for the Ford Mach-E with the extended range. There was also a GT one there. Um, and it was a case of, I'll take whichever one comes back first. So the Mach-E is quite a big thing. Ford actually build good big cars. If you think about the Scorpios over the years, even the Ugly Frog version, it was actually a really good car. That one was just really ugly. The Mach-E really seems to continue that. Okay. It was unexpectedly nice. Outside looks great. I've liked, I like the look of the outside anyway. Inside is really nice, really good quality, really properly finished. I mean, it should do. The one I drove was about 60 grand's worth of car, and that's not particularly highly specced. But it felt like an expensive saloon car. Does this back up our theory that we have been developing that um, EVs... Yeah actually level the playing field on what people are prepared to pay and what car companies feel they can charge irrespective of their badge 
I believe so, yes. But it also gives a different... It also levels... The vehicles are not split in the same way as they used to be. So, I mean, this doesn't say Ford on it anyway. No. It says Mustang. No, no, it's... Everywhere. It's got the Mustang badge and stuff like that. But you go to your Ford dealer to get one. You have to go to your Ford dealer to get one, or your company car people have to go to a Ford dealer. Mm. But you don't have to go to a Ford dealer, actually, because you order them online. You don't even have to deal with your Ford dealer. You order it like you would with many cars nowadays. You can order it online. And and the whole thing, you, you trigger the whole ordering system without having to go to a Ford dealer, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. It's a nice car. I was chatting about it to someone else later on, and they were saying that actually they'd driven one of the latest Audis recently and then hopped back into a Mahi again afterwards and actually decided that the Mahi interior was better. Mm, interesting. Okay, so there's just one to, to mention. I mean, it has a massive slab of touchscreen in the middle, which is a bit... I don't know. I'd need to spend longer with it. It didn't seem too bad. It was relatively intuitive i managed to find some stuff like turning off the one pedal driving and things but it, it seemed pretty cool it's, it's a car i would like to spend more time with it's something that i'd like to i'd like to investigate a bit more i i did like it on first contact okay interesting really like that good to hear uh next up in the randomizer of well what's available was the bmw 220i luxury active tourer now this do not be expecting a two-door saloon in this case, this is an active tourer. So it's a small MPV. And it was a luxury small MPV. I think the when I did the maths, it came in about 38 grand because it was the top of the range with all the stuff added on. You're really going to have to want one. Well, the thing is, MPVs these days are underappreciated. It was phenomenally practical for its size and its length. If you needed a little luxury car... Or if you needed a little car that was really luxurious for use in cities and could carry four and that kind of thing, that's a great niche for this car. It was also really nicely done and finished inside, partly, I'm sure, because it was the luxury spec, but also just some nice touches. The dashboard was really smart and clear and good looking. It had a really cool sort of vertical phone holder, which had a little clip that held it back against the sort of vertical charging pad your gear selector and stuff was all the big armrest that came out making it feel like you were sitting in a little armchair it was really nice a bit different i also think it looked pretty good for an mpv i actually don't mind the looks i think it's far more successful than the one series hatch for starters and definitely nicer than the two grand tourer saloon thing which is ugly at the front and ugly at the back I actually thought it was quite a nice thing. I don't know that I'd choose one, but I actually quite liked it. There we are. Okay. Not for you, not for me, but I can see where it has its place. All right. Next. Next up, the 508 SWPSE. So that's the estate version of the high-powered plug-in hybrid Peugeot 508 estate, which is Peugeot Sport Engineer. That's what PSE stands for. This, I would love to tell you what it was like around the hill route. But bizarrely, this was only allowed on the road route, which is very long and there's too much chance of getting lost and things. Or on the high-speed bowl. I'd love to tell you what it was like going up hills. Love to tell you what it was like going down hills. What I can tell you is that it's a very nice place to go around a, a two-mile circle at 90 miles an hour. 
lovely interior. I still love the eye cockpit with the little tiny steering wheel and the instruments up high. I think that works great. I think the quality inside a Peugeot these days, uh, one of the the upper model Peugeots, is is spot on. Yep, big boot, all the toys, absolutely everything. I, I wish I could tell you more about what it's like to drive, but for some unfathomable reason, I can't. Mm-hmm. Still, they had nice pizza. Oh, good. Well, we're all working on the base. We have to get out of Stellantis what we can get out of Stellantis. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, 56,465 pounds or 700 and something pounds a year over four years with a mileage cap of 6,000 miles a year. My word. That was that's the default finance deal that comes up if you go to the uh, Peugeot configurator for it. Ouch! Stingy, I think. Stingy. I think mm. a lot of that's depreciation. It's cheaper to go. What will come out this Friday? What's coming out this Friday? Special edition. It is. Yes. Yes. It is cheaper. And yeah, yeah. There's a lot more miles. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm anyway anyway forget that what, what was the next thing you uh you jumped into and hurtled around well i didn't so much jump into it i went over and i met because i've never we've never really dealt with the team at uh, sangyong so i went over and got introduced to them by mm-hmm. a friend of the show phil the half and um went out for a passenger ride with phil as he drove the new sangyong musso it's just been updated just been relaunched in the uk it has been toned down a little bit aesthetically Uh, it has been made i'm told a little bit less jiggly i'm not quite sure how jiggly it was before but i'm told it's a little bit less now still quite jiggly but do you know what well ah what am i going to say here i would still buy a hilux but as a budget alternative (laughs) then well yeah, for the price point, though. There's not a lot of other There isn't any competition, is there? There's a, there's a Hilux, a D-Max, or there's this, essentially. What have I missed? Nope, nothing. I don't think I missed it. Nothing until the new Ranger and Amarok, Amarok comes, comes, comes out. Comes. That's right, yeah. Um, so, so yes. Uh, so, you've also got the Sangyong Musso. The Rhino is the top-spec model. And they've tried to make it quite a luxurious and comfortable place to be in the cabin. And they've done it in a sort of budget luxury kind of way. In that they've tried really nicely, and what they've done is is nice, but you can tell there's still a little bit of budget behind it. But stuff like the seats were really comfortable, really supportive. The back seats in particular are worth a mention because they were properly car-like and not the sort of quick shove a bench in the back and make it really yes. upright with the headrests part of the rear window type of thing. <laughs> there were proper back seats in it, loads of legroom. And so, you know, if you did actually have to carry four or five people around on a regular basis um, and you wanted to do it with a dashboard with a nice screen and digital instruments and and a relative and a more modern engine and and stuff, then that would be that would be great. And you want dual zone climate control, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then it's a good it's a decent place to be. Mm-hmm. you'd have to have quite a lot of load in the back of it most of the time. But I'm sure if you did that, if you were someone who did that, then it would work perfectly for you. As I say, the outside has also been toned down a bit. It's now not so bad looking. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm quite keen and quite curious about the rest of the Sangyong range as a result of that. Because in actual fact, some of the others like the Rexton and things uh, have been dialed back in the aesthetic department. For our more conservative European tastes. Yeah. I was actually impressed by that. It was better than my expectations. 
Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, It'd be interesting to learn more about that Uh, and them and the rest of their range. Okay. Yes. Next, after uh, a small wander around the lunch, uh, the lunchtime picnic, the inaugural SMMT drive day picnic challenge that that some (laughs) of us started, I then had an appointment with a Porsche. Uh, this year in the Porsche, so what do you still have available? I forgot to turn up first thing in the morning. Lottery was the Porsche Macan S. Okay. Obviously, this is a smaller midsize SUV, mm-hmm. and it is at the spicier end of the range. So this was at the, um, at, yes, at the more conservative end. So this puts out uh, 380 horsepower. 520 newton meters of the torques and from seems adequate 2.9 uh, yeah 2.9 liter v6 it is relatively nippy as you can imagine and drives that way this one in particular drove uh drove the way you'd expect because it had all the things uh, it had the porsche active suspension management it had the torque vectoring it had the crayon paint on the outside. It had the uprated 21-inch wheels. As a result, it's £53,330 basic list price. Uh, was a mere £69,993. Now, I actually respect that's according to the sheet I got given by Porsche. I tried to respec it on the configurator. I couldn't find the £9 first aid kit that was listed on the spec sheet from Porsche. But that number came in at 71,000 something, almost 72,000. Ouch. 71,272. There we go. And that included such exciting things as the Porsche Active Suspension Management, Porsche Talk Vector Control. What are the other? Those are some of the big tickets. What was the other one? Oh, the 21 inch. Mats. They weren't listed, actually. Bose Surround System at 834. The 14-way electric comfort seats. Oh, that, yeah, the extended leather package. Uh, with the contrast stitching in crayon came in at 3,700. Uh, and uh, to have those, you had to then also add the 14-way electric comfort seats with memory package for £1,044. So, yeah, there were a couple of big ticket items that pushed it up, but it still didn't have uh, active cruise control or or many other things that you would expect. Wow. Cars, yeah. But it was lovely, and I totally get them. <laughs> I did like it. That's always the highlight of my of of my my smmt days my yeah my Porsche this one had the air suspension and it also had the electric tow bar which was kind of cool because it meant you could the buttons inside the boot which meant you could raise and lower it put the tow bar out and put the tow bar did away. you do that in a very childish manner i didn't actually no i oh. restrained myself i don't know what was wrong with me uh, i restrained myself <laughs> um and sort of having a sort of beavis and butthead moment as I have done with other vehicles. Next up, there were quite a few things I drove, by the way, that day, which is why I'm racing through them as quickly as I can. Toyota RAV4 Adventure. I haven't driven a current generation RAV4 since the launch in Barcelona a couple, a few years, yeah, it must be three or four years ago now. So it's had a very slight midlife revision uh, for the time being. It's got revised front styling and headlamps. The version I drove was the Adventure Limited Edition model comes in a sort of funky uh flat green paintwork it's not matte it is it is gloss but it is not metallic mm-hmm. in a sort of sort of pale pale green which i quite like and it had really nice interior fabric on the seats a sort of multi 
a sort of di- a different pattern, sort of multi-textured uh, on the seats, which was kind of cool. I had forgotten how nice the rubberized climate control knobs are on these cars. It's just a really <laughs> nice touch. I just I'd forgotten how nice that was. I had generally forgotten how nice it was to drive one of those, and it made a decent fist to the hill route, despite not being a performance-oriented vehicle. This is very much on my list of cars I'd like to try. I'm intrigued by this. I'm intrigued why so many people go for them. It is the world's best-selling SUV. Uh, they sell millions of these, these every year. And I like the presence. I quite, I really quite like Toyota's sort of corporate nose at the moment. Yeah. Um, I tried to flog the idea to my sister, who is looking for a bigger vehicle than her Master 3, because second sprog on route. That would be perfect for her. That's what I opinion. thought too. That was my opinion. Yes, I said hybrid. She's not going to go down the route of a van-derived car. No, she's not. She was asking me about the Mazda CX-60. Mazda weren't there. Uh, otherwise, it would have been on my list. There's a sort of odd story around how I ended up driving the Rav4 Adventure, but essentially as part of yeah, driving, yeah, driving yeah, the Rav4 yeah. Adventure, I got oh, to drive. Oh my word! It's like a racing driver. The excuses he's coming up with L- here. Listen, I was turfed <laughs> off the stand so they could get a picture of everyone of because the Rav4 was the only one left on the stand at that exact moment in time. So I was asked, "Could I please take it out?" And then that way they could get a picture of the stand with no cars left on it. Then if I did that then they would keep me the Supra for when I got back. So then I took out the Toyota Supra 3-liter Jarama Racetrack Edition. This is number one of 30 of the special edition that were that came to the UK. Toyota Special Edition, not ours. Yes, Toyota Special Edition. <laughs> this was a 3-liter, very similar to the 2-liter, a little bit more rawr, uh for us to it. Auto model. Uh, manual obviously has just been announced, but the uh, I think all the thirty Jaramas have been have been sold, or at least they're not listed on the website anymore. As I said last year, it's like driving a race helmet. It is so compact, so snug, and you just get this kind of slit-like view on the world, which is not dissimilar to an Isagonis Mini from that kind of feeling of sort of look. I can just see out through a sort of it's like it's like driving a post box. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of point squirt go, but it didn't actually feel like it was going to kill me. Possibly because it was a nice dry day <laughs> by this point. Uh, but no, it was it was kind of cool. You can't get it in that expect, exact spec now, uh, but a three liter Super Pro spec uh, will set you back fifty five thousand eight hundred and eighty pounds if you want it in yellow, and fifty six thousand five hundred and thirty pounds if you want it in not yellow. I think it's a little bit underrated. I don't know that I'd choose the, the manual, but then I'm lazy and like an auto. So what do I know? Again, uh, this is a car very much I'd like to try. I'd like to, I'd like to understand it and get a feel for it and see if what people are commenting is what I agree with. Okay. I mean, it shares DNA, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Of course. There we go. Oh, almost made it through that. Next up, brief look at the Genesis GV60. Uh, so this has had its international launch since. I think some of the driving stuff is is embargoed by the looks of it. I haven't really seen many people talking yeah, about. They're it only driving. allowed to rate their balconies, I think. Yes, yes. So it wasn't on a balcony. It was in. Uh, it was in. The, <laughs> it was in the Genesis House of Fun, uh, with uh, with rooftop cocktail bar. 
maybe. the crystal ball maze. Yes. Look of it so it, it it has it has it is literally a Genesis with balls. Well, one, it's got a crystal ball inside, which is which is the way that you sort of navigate around the menus on the on the screen by the looks of it. I wanted a closer look at this. I couldn't get it because there were some YouTubers taking many many takes to take lots and lots of time on the other side until eventually I just had enough and thought, well, I'm just going to walk into your shot because it was getting a little bit excessive. But the outside is really cool looking. Obviously, it shares the same platform as the Ionic 5 and the EV6. Does it hide its size well, then? It seems to. Now, obviously, it was inside. It was on static display. It wasn't beside another car. So it was kind of hard to tell. But it definitely seems lower than, for example, an Ionic 5 and not as long as an EV6. It's a much stubby little... Um, it looks like it's almost square in some pictures. I think so. I think it's still got the width that those two cars have, mm. that its two platform buddies have. It is significantly more expensive than either of those, though, was being commented to me. So I think that there's people from the other parts of the Hyundai group who are keen to see just how and where that money comes from. But I think it's a darn good-looking thing. It's a proper concept car on the road. I think all three of those uh, platform buddies are. They've really, I think they've really nailed. We're going to look different, and not for the sake of looking different. It's different and futuristic without being ugly or OTT or anything like that. Yeah, not not a pastiche. No, exactly. What was next? We're almost done, folks. Uh, next up, Skoda Enyaq Iv. I'm never sure how you pronounce this. Is it the four IV Enyaq IV eighty Sportline? So, yes, uh, Skoda Enyaq in non-super sporty model. Uh, it is a big electric family mobile, basically. Um, based on the same underpinnings as the Volkswagen ID4, obviously that chassis that runs across everything like that. Like that. It was, I mean, I haven't driven an ID4, but I haven't driven an ID3. The difference between this and the ID3 was chalk and cheese. Okay, just the quality difference of stuff, just how things felt. The this was far, far more premium, uh, as it should be given the prices uh, and the price of this one here. Uh, comes in at about forty four thousand five hundred twenty pounds um, as a beginner. This one, I've admired the Enyaq as being a good looking car. I don't think I liked the color of this one very much. It was kind of Rangers blue, uh, but I've seen Enyaq around, and they both and they tend to look. They look good, clean, and they look even better when they're dirty. I know that sounds silly, but it's a it's a car that wears the everyday quite well. Um, mm -hmm. You can quote me on that one, Skoda. <laughs> but really, more than anything else, this is an MPV pretending to be an SUV. It is so big. It is. It is. It is. It is spacious inside. It is vast. It is has a long range. It's there's a lot to like about this um, and i actually think it looks pretty decent too i quite like the looks i would maybe dial back okay. the, the sport line part of it i could do without to be honest i'd rather have one that was comfort oriented it was nice it was a nice thing to drive it was a nice enough thing to look at it was a nice place to be yeah yeah a lot of people say a lot of good things about them mm. so again another car would be very interesting to spend a bit of time with mm -hmm. just to just to get under the skin of it. Yeah. Uh, what's up next? Uh, next up was what was meant to be my last car of the day, but wasn't. Um, the Alpine A10 GT. Now, I remember some time ago. Thoughts and prayers for you in this one, Alan. Oh, Thoughts and God. prayers. Yeah. So Alpine A10 GT. And Richard Brunning. Oh, don't even start here. 
Now, Richard, remember to have lunch today. Why are you saying that? It's because the first year I was here, I was as excited as you are right now, and I forgot. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, it was nice to meet the folks from Bad Obsession Motorsport, so both Richard and Nick, uh, who were there with, oh, I've now forgotten which tire company they were there with. Never mind. But it was nice to catch up anyway with friends. So, yeah, Alpine A10 GT, obviously the mid-engined Alpine GT is the more luxury spec, uh, and this grey example had a lovely brown leather interior. Uh, again, it was... It's kind of funny because this comes in price-wise about the same as the Supra. Okay. So different in, in concept. So whereas the Supra is dark and tight and, and snug in the way it feels inside, this GT model, it's, it's nice leather and quite a lot of glass, obviously, around the cabin, was very airy and light. And everything about it was airy and light. Just no effort at all in the controls. You kind of, as much as you'd think about where you wanted to be on the road or on the track, and you were just there. And it was just completely effortless to make progress. Obviously, I'd just come in from the from the ENIAC, so, so there was a bit of a contrast there. But it was just nice to to be able to, to sort of, to just zip around that hill route. Alan and Machine had become one. But everyone says the same about them. This, this is not worth extracting the urine out of me for that. But just such a pretty, nice thing that's so easy to drive. Lovely to drive. After seeing one at the Late Break Show in Manchester, this, again, is another car I am very intrigued. At. Initially, when they came out, I I was quite scathing about my thoughts on the design and everything, but now I've seen And them. you were wrong then, and as I you're was wrong. wrong now, as you were... I was wrong then. Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, well, I wasn't... I thought I was I right, but now I've actually seen one up close and sort of almost prodded it, but didn't quite because I didn't want to make the people upset on the stand, <laughs> that it it does look great. It is not a pastiche of the 60s. It's, it's nothing like that. It is... It is a modern take on that, and I'd like to see how that translates into the driving. Because I've heard a couple of people go, well, it's not as absolutely 100% superb as everyone says, and that's about as bad as it gets. Ah, oh, this is G.R. Yaris type level, is it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're right. Always what sticks with me about the Alpine A110 was the first time I saw it at Geneva when it had been unveiled and lots of people had come with their families, lots of Alpine engineers had come with their families and they were all having their pictures taken as a team with a car. That strikes me as a group of people who are very proud of the work they've done, don't care who knows it and are really pleased to be part of it and that to me signified a damn good product to be perfectly honest. And my opinion mm -hmm. hasn't changed at all since. No, good. good. Right, so you've got one more car. Last but not least, it was my turn to drive a car that you've driven, essentially, but I hadn't. And in this case, it was the slightly less practical. And so this was the Volvo C40 dual motor, which is the slightly less practical version of the XC40 dual motion that you had uh, before. It is a little squintier. It was a, not as nice a color. It one of these weird four by four jacked up coupe things which i really can't get on board with i just just don't just don't get it nope uh but what i did notice was that it in the interior from where i was in the in the front 
and the drone position, also back seats too, was everything that you'd said previously about the XC40, but it was less practical. The other thing is, blooming heck, that's unnecessarily quick. <laughs> I'm glad I'm backed up on that. For what it was, just just totally unnecessary. And and the thing is, I probably wasn't a lot slower around the hill route because there's a 55 mile an hour speed limit. I probably wasn't a lot slower around the hill route in the C40 than I was in the, the Alpine A110. Mm. But I was two feet higher at least, and you could just feel the weight, but every time you squeezed the throttle on the, on any of the straight bits, it just hurled itself towards the next piece of sort of armco at 90 degrees to the road. And I know which one I preferred, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Crikey, it's, it's a nice place to sit, really a nice mm-hmm. place to sit, and uh, very alluring, but I would have a single-motor XC40 instead of the dual-motor C40. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, just a nice thing. Last thing to really say on all of that is thank you very much to uh, the team and everyone at the SMMT for arranging it, uh, arranging and organizing all of us uh, and putting it on. And thanks to all the manufacturers and all the representatives who attended and made it possible as well. Thank you. We really, really appreciate all your efforts. Yep, absolutely. Even though I couldn't make it, I'm very appreciative. Yes. Otherwise, we'd have had to find proper stories to fill in the second half of the show. But one last story just before we go, Andrew. Yes, and this is motoring-related, but uh, the the story is that there have been a bunch of John Deere tractors that have been nicked from Ukraine on areas of land that have been taken over by the Russian army in their invasion, and they have taken off the John Deere tractors and machinery and they've all gone back to uh, to Russia. They've taken them back to Russia to use them there. However, John Deere have got around this, apparently, by remotely bricking the vehicles. Yes. So this is, I don't know, is this a positive, do you think, of John Deere's... John Deere, of course, is notorious for... Their whole idea of the right to repair is just, just they, they just don't believe in that. That's, that's not something they're doing, and they're trying to make it so that basically you can't work on any John Deere, uh, any modern John Deere yourself. You have to engage John Deere to work on John Deere's. Um, yes. Yes. I am, uh, in this instance, a good thing is happening, but that does not mean that the idea behind it is good. No. This brings up when we talked about... Uh, the Teslas that were given extended range when the hurricane was coming in? Yes, it's the same thing. This is very much, if you're the right sort of person, then we'll allow you to continue using your vehicle. But if we deem you to be unsatisfactory, Mm -hmm. we will stop you from using your vehicle. Mm -hmm. And I am very much not in favour of that sort of thing, as you would imagine. No, it's not a very... So in this instance, a good thing has been done. But overall, this is a dreadful, dreadful idea that will be abused. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was about $5 million worth of uh, of farm equipment, according to the... So registry. that's three tractors then? Uh, no, <laughs> no, there was, no, there was uh, no, I know, I know. Three ca- I know. tractors and a combine harvester. Uh, yeah. sort of, uh, <laughs> well, two of them, actually there were, in, in all seriousness, there were two John Deere combine harvesters, an S770 and an S760 uh, as well, if you want to go look them up, like I'm about to. Yeah, if if you... Well, I, I was jesting a little bit, but farm machinery is 
not cheap. Oh no, it's fantastically expensive. Oh, that's quite cool, isn't it? It comes with combine advisor time, and they package. do a lot of hours. And a fully automated yield sensor calibration with active yield supply active yield supplies accurate data with no time spent calibrating. Alan. Alan. Oh, sorry. We're still you recording. Lose your application audio. for joining the Houses of Parliament if you continue down this road. Oh, yes. Gosh, yes. yes. Shall we go to the parish <laughs> notes? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Uh, um, yes. Uh, I go cross launch special edition last Friday. Go listen, please. Please. <laughs> uh next week next week we're recording on monday yes okay uh, next week we're recording on monday night so keep your eyes peeled on tuesday for the episode hitting your podcast players lots of other stuff being planned in the background by the way as well yes so much other stuff actually mm. which is awesome uh, as ever thank you all for your feedback your comments uh your various thoughts and your expertise uh, it's great to hear. We really do appreciate it. It's it's, it's fab. Your your maxi stories as well. Um, so that's been a, that's been another delight uh, uh, as well. So just 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 cool stuff. Thank you all for getting in touch. Um, but you you're fab. You you're great listeners. You really are. You are. Anyway, uh, now that I've been nice to you, uh, don't forget that now and next week you can give us any feedback. Share your thoughts to show at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook, and on the contact page of motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Uh, remember, you can support us financially via Patreon, and please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. Andrew, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me is via Twitter. If you search for Crap Windscreen, you should find me there. And if you would like to get in touch with Alan, um, what is the best way for anyone to do that? Uh, it's via Twitter. I'm at AJP Bradley, and I posted a little bit of tractor porn earlier on today. We'll be back very soon. But until then, I've been Alan Bradley. I've been Andrew Clues. And safe motoring. <laughs>